You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. There's part of me that wants to read verses 1 through 30, simply to sort of catch the flow and the context and everything. It's been a few weeks since we've done that. But I'm going to resist that because I'm going to give you a, a very quick review. So we'll pick it up in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said to him, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Let's ask God's blessing on our time before we begin. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, for its clarity, its purity. We thank you for giving it to us in our language, that we can understand you, and thank you for revealing yourself and your Son and your will for us in your word. We come now with the expectation that you will be our teacher and that your word will be our guide. We ask for your help in understanding and applying your word to our hearts and to our lives, and that you would be pleased to instruct us now. Equip us and edify us, we pray, and teach us what we do not know and make us what we, we are not. We pray this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Well, it has been almost uh, six weeks or a little over six weeks since we dealt with the whole context of John chapter 4 and all of the details of that. And so now we come to the end of verse 24, which a couple weeks ago we slowed down and took some time on John 24 and the subject of worship and what that is, and what God expects, and what our response to Him is in worship. And so, for that reason, we slowed down, probably slower than we normally would, and you may have sort of forgotten the whole context and the flow and everything that's gone on. When we get to verse 25, which we're beginning to look at this morning, the whole sort of paradigm, the whole conversation has a little bit of a shift and a little bit of a change. Up until this point, verse 25 and these immediate verses that follow, the whole conversation has been between Jesus and this woman. They have been alone, nothing inappropriate there. It's just that I think the Lord didn't want the disciples there to mess up this conversation and to get involved, so it's better to send them off for food because Jesus had an appointment with this woman in Samaria. So the whole conversation has been just Jesus and this woman. And now, beginning in, what is it, verse 27, his disciples come back. And after that, in verse 30, we find out that the, the villagers from the city of Sychar came out to talk to Jesus. And so what has been a private conversation is now going to become very public. And a lot of other people become involved in the conversation, the disciples and the people from Sychar. 
Verse 25 and 26 sort of reaches the climax of the whole conversation. And verse 25 and 26 is the last recorded words between Jesus and the woman at the well. And it sort of seals the deal. Everything in the chapter has been moving up to this point, And this sort of reaches the, reaches the apex of it where we say, is she going to respond to what she has been told? Is she going to take advantage of his offer for eternal life and for living water? Or is she going to turn around and walk away? Is she going to be like Nicodemus and having heard these things, John chapter 3, just walk away and leave Jesus? Or is she going to do something with this tremendous thing that she has been offered, this invitation for eternal life and for salvation? Well, we find out now in verses 25 and following what's going to happen there. So let me quickly recap. The whole thing was set up when the disciples went away into the city to buy food. Jesus was at the woman uh, at the well, and a woman from Sychar of Samaria came out to draw water. Jesus made of her a very simple request, to which she gave a very short and snarky answer. When he said, give me to drink or give me a drink, she said to him in a very short and very uh, curt and rude way, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me a Samaritan for a drink of water? Because see, it was culturally completely unacceptable for a Jew to drink out of a Samaritan cup or a Samaritan vessel of any sort. Culturally unacceptable, traditionally unacceptable. Um, it, it would be ceremonially impure for Jesus to do that. And so what he did was ask her, a Samaritan woman, for a drink, and she was very short with him. Jesus didn't respond, respond in kind. He responded in kindness when he said, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for what I have to offer to you, but you don't know either what you need or who I am or what it is that I can offer to you. And that sort of piqued her curiosity a little bit when Jesus said to her, I could give you living water. And she was willing to sort of follow that analogy, that metaphor a little bit. And she said to him, well, give me this living water. I mean, where do you go to get this? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you better than Jacob who dug the well and drank of it himself and fed his family and all of his livestock and his whole household from this well? What possible water can you give that would be greater than the one, than that which is in the well that is right before us? And that's when sort of the blinders came off and she realized, because Jesus showed her, that he was not speaking of physical water, but spiritual water. He was speaking of eternal life, life eternal and salvation. And that's when she said, well, sure, give me this water. Well, she, though she was convinced that she might need this, she wasn't as convinced as she needed to be convinced in order to really apprehend the truth of what Jesus was saying. So he said to her, go call your husband. Now, that only served to reveal what Jesus already knew, which was that she had had five husbands and she was living with a man who was not her husband. And this, of course, revealed for Jesus, or to, uh, through Jesus, to her, her own sin, her own need for salvation. She was and had been and still was, up to that very moment, a very immoral woman. And she had violated the fifth commandment. She had violated all of the ten commandments because she had coveted and she had lied and she had done all of the things that are wrapped up with having all of these multiple adulterous relationships. Then she finally saw herself for who she was in truth. And then she said to him, I think you're a prophet. I perceive that you're a prophet. Of course, she was right. Now, she had moved from understanding that Jesus was a mere man, a rabbi, another Jewish man. She had been familiar with Jewish men. She had known Jewish men, met Jewish men. Now she's starting to understand he's more than just a man. He's a prophet. And for a Samaritan woman to confess that was to also, also to open up at least the door of the possibility that was what was standing before her was the prophet, the Messiah. Well, having been convinced of her need for eternal life, and where she can get it, and having now a thirst for living water, she asked him the natural question, where do I go to get this? Do I go to Gerizim? Do I go to Jerusalem? Which place do I go to get forgiveness of sins? Which religious system is right? And then Jesus said, it's not a matter of where you go to worship, it's how you worship and what worships in you. It's spirit and truth. And our worship is driven by the nature of God. 
Well, by the time you get to verse 25, having told her that it's not a matter of location, it's a matter of what your whole thinking of worship is and how you worship God in truth, you get to verse 25, and she's finally got to the point where she's saying to herself, okay, living water, eternal life, the Messiah, the prophet, the nature of God, the nature of spirit, the nature of worship, spirit and truth, and what is truth? This has been quite a whirlwind of theological discussion for one afternoon. So she says in verse 25, I'm just looking forward to the day when the Messiah will come and he won't use any of these metaphors. He'll just speak to us plainly. He'll make it known. I'll finally understand it. Won't it be nice? Then you and I won't have to sit here and have this discussion about the nature of God and the nature of worship and spirit and truth. All the confusion will be washed away when the Messiah finally arrives. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. Now that's the climax of the whole conversation. This is when Jesus reveals to her who he truly is. And right before, it is right before, the disciples finally show up again from Sychar with the master's lunch. So that's the scene, and we're going to see in verses 25 through 30, we're going to look at two of these this week and two of them next week. We're going to see today Jesus' self-revelation, the self-revelation of Jesus, his disclosure of who he is. And then second, we're going to look at the stunned response of the disciples in verse 27. They were amazed that he was speaking to a woman. You see all that's, we're going to unpack that and see all that's involved in that. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in verse 25, when the woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, your translation probably puts he who is called Christ in parentheses or brackets. And that's probably because this is not the words of the woman. This is the editorial comment of John, the author of the gospel. That's an explanation as to what she meant when she said, I know that Messiah is coming, Messiah. She would have felt, or sorry, she would not have felt the need to explain who the Messiah is to this Jewish prophet standing before her. But John, the author of the gospel, wants to sort of give a translation to any Greek or any reader who might not understand what the term Messiah means. That's why he puts in brackets, he who is called the Christ. So her statement to him is, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will explain all of this to us. He'll unfold us, he will make it plain. And that's when Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, I am the Messiah. Now up to this point, She has not argued with him at all about the nature of worship or the nature of God or whether it's Jerusalem or whether it is Gerizim. She has accepted everything that he has said as truthfulness and she has not contradicted him and said, well, I think that it's the temple on Gerizim. They didn't get into a theological discussion. Furthermore, I think that at this point, the woman is likely very uncomfortable with the whole flow of the whole conversation. She knows of her sin. It's been revealed. She's had five husbands. She's currently living in sin with another man. None of that has made her comfortable. And the fact that she is standing in the presence of a man who is a Jewish prophet and seems to know the deepest, darkest, most intimate, and private details of her life. This has made her uncomfortable. And so in her attempt, I think, to sort of wrap up this conversation, she basically just says, I know that when the Messiah is coming, he'll make all of this plain. You and I can stop having this conversation about this. We'll just wait until he shows up and then he will sort all of this out. And you notice that the woman had a messianic expectation. She knew the Messiah was coming. She felt the Messiah was coming. Samaritans, like Jews, had messianic expectations. Messianic anticipation was at a fever pitch, not only in the area, but at that time, as Jews everywhere were waiting for the coming Messiah. Everybody was waiting with bated breath, as it were. It was at a fever pitch. Everybody expected the Messiah to come soon. And Samaritans were no different. She was just like the Jews in that way, that she thought the time was ripe for the Messiah to finally show up and step onto the scene. And you remember that the Samaritans did not recognize any of the books of the Old Testament other than the first five, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those five. 
But even just accepting those five books of the Old Testament, they knew enough to know that a Messiah was coming. They had an anticipation of a Messianic figure because of the prophecies and the predictions just in the books of Moses. She may have been familiar with Genesis 3, verse 15, which is what we call the Proto-Evangelion or the Proto-Gospel, the first pronunciation of the Gospel. When the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That was the first prediction of a Messiah. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. She also would have read in Genesis 49, verse 10, of the prophecy of Jacob when he blessed his twelve sons, and he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, that is, until the ruler comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Or she would have been familiar with Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, where the Lord said to Moses, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brethren, and the people will obey him. All of those messianic predictions, she was familiar with them. And the Samaritans were, like the Jews, anticipating one who would come who would be a ruler, who would be a redeemer, who would be a savior, who would crush the serpent's head, who would reverse the effects of the fall. They anticipated all of that. But their understanding of the Messiah was meager at best because they rejected the rest of the Old Testament. So they had no understanding that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem because they had never read and didn't accept as truthful, Micah 5, verse 2. They had no idea that he would come from the line of David. They had no idea that he would be crucified because they didn't have uh, Isaiah 53. They didn't read Psalm 22. They had no understanding that the Messiah would come and that he would die. They had no understanding that the Messiah would rule from Jerusalem like all the Old Testament prophets predicted. They didn't understand that because they rejected all that. But they did have this kernel, this nugget of truth that a Messiah was coming and she expected him to be a teacher. She expected him to come and explain all of the spiritual stuff in her own language so she could understand it and it would be clear. And she was waiting for that. And you know what I think sort of sparked that mess, that desire for a redeemer in her? It was Jesus' statement, go call your husband. Oh, I've had five husbands. I mean, that was painful to admit. My whole moral history, all my sin, my immorality, my wickedness, my violation of God's law, my guilt before Him, all of that was brought to the surface. And so, of course, at the top of her mind, is her own realization of her need for a Savior. So when Messiah comes, he will explain all of this and he will make it He will make it plain. Now Jesus' statement to her in verse 26 is shocking. We read over it. We don't understand the shock of it, but I'm going to unpack this for you so you can see just how shocking this was. I who speak to you am he. Now it's shocking for this reason, first of all, because as you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and all of the rest of John, you will read of no other statement from the lips of Jesus where he declares his own Messiahship in such clear, straightforward, absolutely plain declaration with such a concise way. You will read of no place in any of the Gospels where he does that like he does here in John chapter 4. Now, he may have said it somewhere else, but it's not recorded in the Gospels. In other parts of the Gospels, Jesus used Old Testament messianic titles of himself, like Son of Man and Son of David. He used those titles to describe himself. Other places in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, of course, did um, quoted from the Old Testament messianic prophecies and messianic passages and applied them to himself. Jesus even did messianic things, like cleansing the temple and healing people. But at no point in any of the other Gospels do we read of such a straightforward, such a concise, such a simple, such a radical declaration that I am the Messiah. Now he pointed to it, he hinted at it, he alluded to it, he called himself Messianic titles. 
But here and here alone do we say, do we hear him say, I am that one. So it's a shocking thing. It's also shocking that he says this to a woman. There's something else that makes it a very shocking statement, and it's actually because of something that's in your New Testament that's not in the original. In your Bible, as you look at that passage, verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, how many of you are reading a translation where the word he is in italics? Okay, a lot of you have good, faithful, accurate translations of the Bible. Have you ever read through a passage and seen a word in italics and asked yourself, why do they put some words in italics and other words in not? Not in italics. Try that again. Other words, not in italics. Why do they do that? It is because the translators of the New Testament, when they, when they do that, they make notes in the margins sometimes about textual variants. But another thing that they do is words that are not in the original Greek, that if we left them out in the English, would kind of make our English translation very choppy and not really clear. They will sometimes add a word or part of a phrase or something like that in order to make the English translation run smoother. It's not that It's not that they're trying to add to Scripture. It's not that they're trying to change the meaning. It's that they're trying to make clear in the English what the meaning is. But they are good enough to point out in our English translation when a word in the original Greek is not there. So what word is not in the original Greek? It's the word he. Now literally, without trying to make this sound smooth for the English translation, if you were to read this literally in the Greek and just translate it, it would say, verse 26 would read, says to her the Jesus, I am the one speaking to you. Now, how many of you are familiar with the I am statements in the Gospel of John? Over 21 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that phrase, I am, to describe himself. Where did he get that? Where did that come from? A couple weeks ago, in our scripture reading from John 8, I mentioned to you that that phrase, I am, was the divine name given by God to Moses for himself, for God's self, in Exodus chapter 3. At the burning bush, after the Lord said to Moses, I want you to go back into Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. I'm going to deliver my nation, of my people, through you. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, What is his name? And what shall I say to them? If I tell them, God has sent me to deliver you, and the children of Israel say, Well, who is this God? What is his name? Moses said, What am I going to say to them? The Lord says to him in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Now without unpacking all of the meaning of that phrase, I am, it just simply was God's way of saying, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. I am the Almighty. I am the self-existent one. I am the giver of all life. I am. God is great. I am. He's self-sustained. He is self-existing. He depends upon nobody else. He's the giver of all life, the essence of all life. He is the one who is the greatest being. He is the I Am. And that's the title that the Lord gave to Moses to give to the sons of Israel. Now, when the Old Testament Hebrew was translated into the Greek Septuagint, which was the translation that Jesus and the apostles and the people of Jesus' day would have been familiar with, they translated that phrase, I Am, with two Greek words, Ego, I Me. Ego, I me. Now to make it even clearer, in John 4:26, when Jesus says, "The one who is speaking, to, I am the one who is speaking to you," the "I am," ego, I me, is at the beginning of the phrase. So it literally reads, "The woman said to him, "When the Messiah comes, he will tell us all these things plainly." And Jesus said, "Ego, I me." The one speaking to you. He may as well just have said, "Yahweh is the one speaking to you." I am the God of Exodus 3, and I am standing in your presence 
And I am the Messiah. I am the God of the Old Testament. And I'm the one that is speaking to you right now. I mean, that is chilling. That is a shocking statement. 21 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that divine title of himself and applies it to himself and says to those who are listening to him, I am. Let me give you a couple of examples. Oftentimes in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses that divine title, but he uses it in a metaphor to sort of unpack who he is and his nature. For instance, John chapter 6, verse 35, Ego I me, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. That's the divine title used in a metaphor of himself. John 6.41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. John 6.51, I am the living bread. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. John 10 verse 9, I am the door. John 11 verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine. And there are more. I could go on. Most of the time, Jesus simply uses the divine name of himself without any metaphor, just simply to, to communicate that he is the God of the Old Testament that spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Turn over just a couple of pages, and I'll show you three of them in one chapter. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, looking at verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that ego I me, you will die in your sins. Notice the he is not there. It's in italics if it's in your translation. What was Jesus saying? Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8 verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. John 8:58. when Jesus had said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day, and when he saw it, he was glad. The Jews said, you're not even 50 years old yet. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And what was their response? They picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was claiming. And here he had done it three times in their presence, unmistakable the last time, before Abraham ever came into existence. Ego I me, I am. I am the eternal God and I existed before Abraham. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus was saying. And they finally said, enough of this blasphemy. And listen, friends, if Jesus Christ is not the eternal, infinite, almighty God in human flesh, then what he said is blasphemy. And he deserved to be stoned. He deserved worse than being stoned. But he is the great I am. And he used the divine title of himself. That's why it's shocking. Not only... Not only is this the clearest declaration of his Messiahship that you ever read from the mouth of Jesus, but he applies here in John chapter 4, verse 26, the divine name to himself. And this is the first of over 21 of these I am statements, and we'll see each one of them as we work our way through the Gospel of John. There's a third reason why what Jesus says in verse 26 would have been shocking. And hold on to your pants for just a minute, ladies, but this is the reason. It was because he said this to a woman. And you're going to appreciate this later on. This is, I'm not setting this up for a joke or a slam on women or anything like this. But Jesus said this to a woman. Not only that, but he said it to a Samaritan woman. Now, women were not even considered reliable eyewitnesses in that culture, weren't allowed to testify in a court of law. You couldn't believe a woman. You owned women. You didn't treat women well in that culture. I'm going to just describe that for you in just a little bit. But the fact that Jesus would say this to a woman was stunning, shocking, The fact that he would say this of all types of women to a Samaritan woman was shocking. If you were in charge of public relations for Jesus and you wanted to find a perfect place and a perfect time and a perfect group of people to reveal his messianic credentials to, his messiahship to, 
what would you have planned? You would have said, we need to do it in Judea. Need to do it in Judea. Because Judea, of course, is the location of Jerusalem and the temple. You don't want to do it in Samaria. Nobody loves the Samaritans. Everybody hated the Samaritans. You don't want to go up into the backwards Clark Fork of the land of Israel, the region of Galilee that everybody despised and looked down on. You don't want to do it up in there. Where do you want to do it? You want to do it in Judea. Further, you would want to do it in the city of David, Jerusalem. That's the city of the great king. That's Mount Zion. That is the place where the Messiah would come and He would reign over the nations from Jerusalem. He would set up His throne there and rule over the nations there. That's where that's where you would want to do it, in Jerusalem. And further, if you were a PR guy and you were really intuitive, you would say, I think we should do it right inside the temple. Perfect. Right inside the temple of God where the priests are there and the sacrifices and the Pharisees spend a lot of their time and the Sadducees are there. That's where we would have Jesus reveal His Messiahship. And to whom would you have Him reveal His Messiahship? Oh, if you were a good PR guy, you would say, I would have him do it to the leaders of the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, the high priests, the priesthood, Annas and Caiaphas, and guys like Gamaliel and Nicodemus. That's who I would have. Do I have those guys present? We would make this big revelation right in the temple, in Jerusalem, in Judea. What could be better than that? What does Jesus do? He left. Now, had he been in the temple? Yeah, John chapter 2. Remember, he cleansed the temple. Had he been in Jerusalem? That's where he had his conversation with Nicodemus. Had he talked to the religious leaders and the guys like Gamaliel and Nicodemus? He certainly did. Had he been in Judea? He had been in Judea. But John chapter 4, verse 3 says he left Judea and he went into Samaria. And here in Samaria, not Judea, near Sychar, not Jerusalem, at the base of Mount Gerizim with the temple in the background, not in the temple of God, and to an immoral, unrighteous Samaritan woman, not to the moral, righteous Jewish men, he declared his messiahship. Now that is exactly the opposite of what you would expect if you wanted everybody to know about it, wouldn't it? And yet here is the clearest declaration of his messiahship that you could ask for. Isn't it true what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world? He passed over the Jewish leaders. He passed over Jerusalem, passed over Judea and the temple. And what did he choose? This woman. Here was one of his sheep who heard his voice and he came to her and he gathered her in. He showed to him, uh, showed to her himself in all of his glory and his messiahship and is revealing this to her so that she might come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the way God works. First Corinthians chapter one, Paul says, God has not chosen many noble, many, but he's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the things that are not in order to put to, put to nothing the things that are. You know why God chose this woman to reveal his messiahship to? Because she was a nothing. She was a nobody. She was foolish. She was weak. She was despised. And that is what God chooses. I'm thankful for that. Are you? I'm thankful that those are the ones that God chooses to glorify Himself and to make Himself known to. Now, why this woman and not Nicodemus? They just had a conversation with Nicodemus. We went through it in John chapter 3. Why this woman and not Nicodemus? Why is it that God chooses to reveal Himself and His glory and His credentials to some people and not others. Do you ever ask yourself that? Why me and not my brother, my uncle, my dad, my grandpa, my best friend? Why me and not them? Jesus could have made this declaration to Nicodemus, but He didn't. Jesus could have gone right into Herod's palace and made this declaration, revealed His Messiahship to Herod, but He didn't. He could have done this to Pilate, but He didn't. Why not? Why not those men and why this immoral woman? 
The answer is in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. It was pleasing to God to hide this from Nicodemus, to hide it from Caiaphas, from Herod, from Pilate, from Annas, from the religious elite, and to reveal it to people such as this woman. That pleased the Lord. Mark chapter 4, Jesus said to his disciples, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom and not to those who are outside. God reveals himself to some and not others, and that is his sovereign purpose. It is his sovereign right, and he chose this woman while he passed over those in Jerusalem. And by the way, if you read this with Jewish eyes in the first century, and you read in John chapter 4, verse 3, that Jesus left Judea, he left the temple, he left his conversation with Nicodemus, he went up into Samaria. Ooh, yes, Samaria? Yuck. And there he had a conversation with an immoral woman? Yuck. And he revealed to her his Messiahship? You'd be saying to yourself, how foolish is that? How foolish is that? You would never have done that. You would never have chosen to do that. And yet if you were reading this passage with first century Jewish eyes and thinking, one thing would ring loud and clear in your ears and your understanding, and that is that what Jesus did was a declaration of his own judgment. Because you see, what he did is he passed over Judea, Jerusalem, the temple, the religious leaders, Nicodemus, and he took his message. He took grace, not to any of them, not to the corrupt, self-righteous, apostate state of that religious system, but to this immoral woman out in the countryside. That rings with judgment in the ears of a Jew that their Messiah would do that and choose to reveal himself to a woman such as this. So it was a shocking statement for all of those reasons. Now I want you to notice the stunned reaction of the disciples. Not only the self-revelation of Jesus, but the stunned reaction of the disciples. Verse 27, at this point, and I love that because it literally reads, at this moment, at this instant, right at this time. And John is giving to us the precise moment when the disciples arrived back from going into Sychar to get food. It was at this moment. At what moment? It was when the woman, he, when the woman said to Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain it. And they heard that. They wandered up onto the scene. And what they heard was her statement to him and his statement back to her, ego I me, the one is speaking to you. I am is speaking to you. They heard this. Now I think that John, who was with the disciples and gone into the city and came back, remembers the precise moment that he came on the scene. That's why he gives us this detail. It was this moment. You couldn't, you couldn't pick a better moment to have the disciples show up, I think. Notice that they didn't come any earlier. What had happened if they'd come earlier? What would have happened if they had come at the time when Jesus said, go fetch your husband? You know what she would have done? She would have clammed up. She wouldn't want to have this conversation in front of all of these strange men. She didn't want to have them talk about her moral life in front of 12 other guys. She wasn't interested in that. What if they had, what if, they had showed up while Jesus was trying to explain to her the nature of true worship and the nature of God. You know what they likely would have said? They would have said, whoa, 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 wait, Master, what are you doing talking to her? Let's let's distract him. Let's play the part of a rodeo clown. Get him thinking about something else, doing something else. Get this woman out of his presence, this immoral woman. We don't want anything to do with her. But at the precise moment, not too soon and not too late, see, they didn't show up any later, or they would have missed this whole ending of the conversation, which is the best part of the whole deal. But at this precise moment, I marvel at the fact that God is so precise in his timing of every event. Not too soon, not too late, the disciples showed up back on the scene because the Lord was in control of all of these details. This whole conversation, all of the details surrounding this, Jesus is in perfect control 
of the providential timing of all of these things. And right at the right time, the disciples show up. And it says that they are stunned. And they are stunned because he is speaking with a woman. Now, part of their stun obviously has to do with the fact that what they had just heard. They had just heard Jesus declare himself to be the Messiah, but it was to a woman, and it was to a Samaritan woman nonetheless. That was shocking to them. I can kind of imagine the scene, because it's a two-hour walk from Sychar out to the well, out to Jacob's well. I can imagine the scene. The disciples have gone into the town to buy food. They picked up enough food for themselves and for, uh, for Jesus, and they're sort of wandering back to the well, making their time, munching on bread and pickled fish or whatever it is that they ate in those days, and they're chatting amongst themselves. And one of them says to the other, man, I, I just I can't wait to get back to the well. Let's get out of this area. I wish we could go around Sychar, not through it. I don't know why Jesus wanted us to stop in Sychar. It seemed like a bad decision to me. I don't even like having any dealings with Samaritans. I don't want to have to buy food off of them if I don't need to. Let's just get this food back out to the well, get Jesus out of here before he has to talk to any of these godless idolaters. And that temple that's sitting up on the hill over there, that is just a blot on the Holy Land. And is, is that Jesus? Is he speaking to a, who's he speaking with? Is he speaking to a woman? He's speaking to a woman. Does she look familiar to any of you? Does he know her from somewhere? Let's get over there. And so they kind of pick up the pace a little bit, which I think they wanted to get there because this was, this was stunning that they saw their master having a conversation with a woman. And they arrive on the scene only to hear her say, well, Messiah comes, he's going to sort all this out. Which, by the way, their arrival coincided with that statement, which this is her way of wrapping up the whole conversation. So this conversation has come to this point, and as these men step onto the scene and walk up within earshot, she's basically saying, when the Messiah comes, he'll sort it all out. That's it. End of discussion. She doesn't want to talk about it any further. They heard this, and then they heard Jesus say, Ego, I mean, the one that's speaking to you. Yahweh's speaking to you. And a woman? You, you didn't say this to Nicodemus. You didn't say this in Jerusalem. A woman? Now, part of the shock or part of the inability for us to comprehend why this would be shocking to them is because culturally in our context, we don't think anything of men speaking to women, do we? After the service is over and I'm standing at the back or I'm standing up here or I'm wandering around, I don't think anything of having a conversation with a woman in a public place, but in that culture, in that context, you didn't do that. You didn't even speak to your wife in public or your daughters in public. Men did not address women in that context in public at all. Let me read to you some of the statements of rabbis from that period of time. They wrote these things down so that you and I could enjoy them later. One rabbi said, A man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men may think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman, on account of what men may say. Now, there's some wisdom to that, is there not? We recognize that. We don't want anything to look inappropriate. You don't travel with women, people of the opposite sex that are not... Uh, your, your wife or your daughters or close relatives, we do things in order to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And that is right and that is fitting. In that context, they took it way beyond that. They didn't even appear in public with their wives alone or stay in an inn with their wives alone lest men may think something inappropriate of them because they might not know who your wife is and they just see you, see you staying with a woman. They think that's inappropriate. Also in that day, they said, let thy house be opened and wide and let the needy be members of thy household and talk not much with womankind. Why is that? It was because in that context, women were so despised that men did not even consider women as worth talking to or worth having a conversation with. After all, what could a woman contribute to the conversation? She wants to talk about sewing and kneading and bread recipes and all of that. As a man, you just, 
they're not even worth having a conversation with. It would be a waste of time in that context for a man to have a conversation with a woman. And though Jews regarded the study of God's law and the study of God's word to be such a high ideal, something the best thing that you could be involved in, they did not teach women the word of God. Why is that? Well, that's like casting pearls before swine. You don't teach women the law. So one rabbi, one sage, said, He that talks with much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna, the hell, damnation. He said, if you, if you speak much with a woman, then you're neglecting time spent studying the law, and if you neglect time spent studying the law to speak with a woman, you're going to inherit hell. So speaking with a woman could actually send you to hell. You don't want to do that. It'll lead you away from studying the law of God and the word of God. You've got better things to do than talk to women. One rabbi said, he who instructs his daughter in the law plays the fool. There was another rabbi who suggested that women be taught portions of the law, certainly not all the law, but portions of the law for certain purposes. And another rabbi responded to him, if any man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is though he taught her treachery or lechery. It was sexual immorality. Better to teach your daughter to be a prostitute than to waste time teaching her the word of God. Can you imagine such thinking? They had a prayer which is still contained in Jewish prayer books. The men would wake up every morning and pray, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. And the women had a corresponding prayer, and it went like this, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has fashioned me according to thy will. Yeah, women just had to find the silver lining in that cloud of being a woman. I guess it must be the Lord's will. It was the best thing they could say about it. But a man could pray, Lord, thank you that I am not a woman. Now, why do I share that with you? Is it to make women feel bad or to make men feel good or to set it up on a tee for a dozen different jokes that come flooding to my mind at this moment. It's none of that. I share that with you just, first of all, so you can understand the cultural shock of walking up and hearing their master speaking like this to a woman. But second, I want you to see the grace and condescension of Jesus that he would speak to a woman. The Lord often set aside all of the cultural, traditional, societal taboos of his day, and he always had a good reason for doing it, he would often set those things aside and cut right across the grain of everything that his culture and society said to do, said was proper, and he did that in grace. It is Christianity, and only Christianity, that has elevated women from this type of a position and mentality to what we enjoy in this country today. Only Christianity. That is the effects of Christianity. Jesus Christ did not treat women like that. He was not merely a little different than other men of his day, he spoke to women. Read through the New Testament and look how he speaks to women, how he treated women, how he welcomed women, how he talked with them publicly. It is all over the Gospels. And we see the disciples, those who followed Christ, doing the same thing after him. And in the book of Acts, you see women who served prominently in prominent positions within the church. They were afforded dignity and respect that they had to that point never known. Christianity was revolutionary. And if you think the Jewish idea of women that I just read to you is bad, the cultures and the nations that surrounded Israel were worse than that. Worse than that. The Jews were good compared to others. But Christianity set all of that on its head. And through Christ and the teachings of the church and the teachings of Christianity, women were lifted from a position to a position that they had never known. No other religion has ever done that. None. Can you think of a single Muslim-led country that treats women with the dignity and respect that is afforded to women in the United States of America? You know what you will find? Show me a country that treats women with dignity and respect and affords them that type of respect and honor, and I will show you a country that has a long history of Christianity and Christian influence. Europe and North America are the two 
You cannot find a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, an animistic, or an atheistic culture where women are treated like they are in Christian or post-Christian countries. And today, we are still living off of the effects of our Christian heritage. Atheists and agnostics and skeptics like to say that it's Christianity that oppresses women. Read a history book. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's Christianity that has elevated women from that, from that vantage point that they once had in cultures all over the world. It was revolutionary. Well, that's the grace of Christ. Now, let's finish up point two, verse 27. They were amazed because he had been speaking to a woman, and yet no one said to him, what do you seek or why do you speak to her? No one dared to ask him. No one said anything to him. But you know they were thinking it, right? The fact that we are told that they did what they didn't say tells us that they were thinking what they didn't say. They were thinking to themselves, what is he doing speaking to a woman? But none of them said anything. None of them dared bring the subject up with Jesus. You can imagine the disciples, can't you? Hey, ask him. Ask him what? Ask him why he's not speaking, why he's speaking to a woman. Ask him why he said that to that woman. I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. I'm not going to ask him. They all sat around with it on their minds. All of them were wondering, why is he doing this? No one raised the question. Why? Why did they not dare ask him? Why didn't they just take him aside and say, what was that whole conversation about? When you were doing something that's not culturally acceptable, what is that about? None of them dared ask him. And I think maybe one of three reasons. It could be that they feared him in a positive way. They feared him. They'd just seen him cleanse the temple. They'd just seen him insult Nicodemus, which was no small task. Insult Nicodemus and walk away from Jerusalem. They had seen him turn water into wine. They had seen demonstrations of his power and his majesty and his glory. There was probably a sense of fear. You just you don't want to say something to somebody of that caliber lightly. It might also be that they just simply didn't want to be the one to ask the stupid question. Right? You ever been in a group where the question's on everybody's mind, but nobody wants to be the one to ask it because you say to yourself, I'm tired of being the guy that asked the stupid question. We now have Thomas in our midst. He can do all the asking of the stupid questions, and we'll just let Thomas do it. And so you're glad that somebody shows up who's willing to ask what's on everybody else's mind. Or it might be that they just simply said to themselves, you know, we know this man well enough to know that he does things that we would never think were appropriate, and he does things that are not the way that we would do them, and we're just going to remain silent because we know that we are not the master here, he is the master here, and so it's just not my place to ask why. It's not my place to ask why. Does God ever do things that you don't understand? Does he ever allow things that you just you just don't get why he's allowing it? He ever puts you through things that you just you just don't get? You can't get your arms around it. You can't comprehend it. You can't see it. You can't see what is going on or what good is coming out of this situation. And God tends to do things that are not our ways, and he does them in ways that are not our ways. He does things that are not things that we would do. He allows things that we don't think he should allow. I think there comes a point where as his followers, as his servants, we just simply say, I will play the role of a servant, and I will keep my mouth shut. And I'm not going to ask why, and I'm not going to question. I'm just going to recognize that he does things his way. And there will come a day when it will be made known to me why this is happening, and I am willing to wait in silence until that day. Maybe that's what was going on in their minds. Well, we've looked at the self-revelation of Jesus, the stunned response of the disciples, and there are two more we need to look at, and we'll do this next week, the speedy report of the woman, and then the seeking response of the villagers who come out to meet Jesus. So we'll pick it up and finish our passage next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to you that you give us your word and that we have this time in it. We thank you for the examples that you've given us in Scripture and for what we here learn. 
We pray, O oh God, that you would give to us wisdom and grace to see you do things in our lives that we don't understand and to remain silent and to not question or doubt you. We thank you that we can always trust in your goodness and your wisdom and your wise disposal of all things. We thank you for your grace and your kindness that you have condescended and made yourself known even to such as us. Thank you that you loved us enough to pull us from the pit and to make us what we are not, and to redeem us and adopt us into your family. Thank you that you have done this to the worthless, the despised, the foolish, and the weak, and the ignoble, for that certainly is everybody in this room. We praise you for your grace and kindness to us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.